Um, but this morning we're going to be continuing in our uh, sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. It's been a kind of a whirlwind tour um, through the Gospel. I know we haven't hit every major point because they're all major points, uh, but we kind of wanted to go through it before the run-up to Christmas, which is, starts next month. Um, I know Graham reminds us of Christmas. It goes so fast, doesn't it? But Christmas will soon be upon us. Uh, but we're going to kind of wrap it up in here over the coming weeks in the Gospel of Luke. And I hope you feel God's been speaking to you, um, been challenging you in some ways. And if he has, I hope he challenges you even more. And if, he, if you don't feel that challenge yet, I hope you feel challenged this morning by what I feel God's asked me to bring. And this morning, more specifically, we're going to be talking about the garden, more specifically than that, the garden of Gethsemane. Um, Luke, when we read this account in just a moment, he's not going to say the garden of Gethsemane, he's going to say the Mount of Olives, but don't get confused. The other gospels kind of narrow it down to where Jesus is actually pl- playing out this little story here. So, um, so look, let me just pray again re- one more time real quick, um, because otherwise I'd be like hyper and crazy. So uh, let me just pray one more time real quick, zoning on Jesus. He is here. He wants to speak to you through the power of his word. Um, so why don't we just pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that as a church, we get the privilege to come and open up your word together and travel through it together. Um, But Lord, we know that without the power of your spirit, Lord, stuff can can go missing. We can hear good ideas and they kind of just disappear from our thoughts by the time it gets around to lunchtime. Uh, So Lord, we pray that we would be impacted by your Holy Spirit this morning, not just hear your words, but be receivers of your words and, and put them into action. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said? Amen. Okay. All right. Good. I know it's cold outside. I know it feels like winter's coming, but just, you know, get yourselves, you know, moved and limber and ready, ready for this morning because it's going to be good. Okay. Luke 22. Um, okay. Let me just say something real quick. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, that's great. Turn to Luke 22. We always put it up on the screen now. don't know if you've noticed. That's to help you if uh, if you feel like, oh man, I wish it was just on the screen. Um, there are always Bibles at the back. Um, I would encourage you, you can, if you don't have a Bible at home, take one. It's yours. It's a gift. Um, and you can go and grab one before the meeting starts if you forget yours. But I would really encourage you. It's really helpful. I know we have amazing phones and all these types of tablets and stuff now. But actually having the Word of God in, in book form is actually really helpful to see where you've come from and where you're going in this story set in context the, the piece of scripture we're going through in the morning so if you have your bible i really encourage you to do that um but if you have your phones okay i'm not a, you know not going to tell you off or anything but just it's helpful okay luke 22 39 to 46 jesus went out as usual to the mount of olives and his disciples followed him on reaching the place he had said to them Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep exhausted from sorrow why are you sleeping he asked them get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation so this is a very well-known piece of scripture it's a well-known image jesus praying in the garden he's about to be arrested and we're kind of reaching 
the climactic point in Jesus' ministry and his life, and everything has been leading to this moment, to this, to this night where Jesus is he's about to be arrested. He knows it. Um, and this is going to be a long night for everybody involved, the people who are arresting him, Jesus himself, the disciples. And actually what you could say is it's already been a very long day for everybody. Um, it, it, the day has been the day of the Passover, the Passover uh, festival happened every year. It would have been something that they would have been preparing the meal uh, all day, ready for the festival on the night. And this is something that was very normal to the disciples. In Jewish, in Israeli culture, this was something that they celebrated every year. It happened in the month of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar. And it was a festival every year in which they would remember the Exodus story. You know, Jesus come, uh, sorry, God rescues his people from slavery, from the tyrant of the Egyptian uh, pharaoh, and he frees the Israelites from slavery, uh, parts the Red Sea, and he makes a covenant, uh, a covenant with his people. He sets Israel apart as his holy nation. And what they would have done, what they would have been expecting the disciples on this day, is they would have expected exactly what they got. They were preparing for a meal excuse me, they were preparing for a meal and they met in this upper room and instead of what they were expecting, they would have expected Jesus to lead the meal, that would have happened normally and they were very expectant of that and that happened. Jesus would lead telling stories and going through uh, the Exodus story um, and they would eat different foods, bread with bitter herbs in it, all different types of things. But Jesus didn't lead the story the way that they expected him to. You know, we know it now as the Last Supper, don't we? And instead of talking about the covenant that God made, instead he turns the conversation to be about what he's about to do. He makes a new covenant, talks about his body, which is about to be broken, about the blood that he's about to pour out, and he makes a new covenant with his disciples. And they had this meal together, this Last Supper, and at this point, Jesus knows that Judas, Judas Iscariot has, has, has betrayed him. Uh, Judas, um, he has decided to sell Jesus out, literally. He's taken money in order that, um, in order that Jesus is going to be arrested. Now, the thing is, is that it wasn't difficult to arrest Jesus. He was in the temple teaching. He had mass following crowds of thousands at this point in Jerusalem, coming to hear him teach. So it was very easy to arrest Jesus any moment that he was right there, that he wasn't hiding from anybody. But the problem that the chief priests had um, was, when do you arrest Jesus? Do you risk arresting him when he's surrounded by crowds of people that could, you know, <laughs> uh, come after us and protect Jesus? Do you, you know, face that happening within the city um, and then getting on the bad side of the Romans? No, like... They had to figure out a way to arrest Jesus when he was alone, when he was without the crowds. But the problem is, where is he? He's protected. His disciples would have looked after him. And where does he go? Well, Judas knew. Judas knew exactly where he was going to be. And Judas, at this point, had already gone. He went to the chief priest and said, let me help you arrest Jesus. Um, and he was obviously going to take money to do that. 
So Luke tells us right at the beginning of this passage that as usual, Jesus is going to go um, to a place where he usually prays. And this is important. Uh, he goes to a place, uh, we know from the other gospel accounts that it's more specifically the Garden of Gethsemane. So I've got a map to show you. Um, so what we think is that Jesus in uh, this southwest corner here, this is quite a, a packed place in terms of population. And uh, the upper room, that's where we believe it is, where he would have had the last um, supper. And then the Garden of Gethsemane, you see right in the northeast, we like the northeast, don't we? Right in the northeast, um, was right up there uh, in the northeast there, Gethsemane. And Jesus would have left through the gate here in the southwest, and he would have walked up onto the hillside. He would have been able to see the whole of uh, Jerusalem. Um, and it was, it was significant that it points that out. It was where Jesus usually went to pray because actually Judas knew exactly where to take the temple guards. And when Jesus said, okay, I'm going to go and spend some time in prayer, and the Mount of Olives is not a small place. You can see there, it stretches the whole length of Jerusalem. Um, but more specifically, it was Gethsemane. So Judas knew exactly where to take the temple guards. And Gethsemane was, uh, was a garden. Uh, we call it the Garden of Gethsemane. But it, the, the word Gethsemane comes from uh, the Hebrew, or the, derives from the Hebrew and Aramaic word for oil press. Anybody like olive oil in here? Like it, was, it would have smelled of fresh oil. It would have had beautiful trees. It would have been this walled off garden protecting their, their precious trees. And Jesus often spent time in prayer there. And at this moment, although... Uh, we see that Jesus had his disciples with him. He takes his disciples with him to go and pray. That can come off now, that's great. Um, but Jesus takes his disciples with him to pray. Now, uh, when we read through the Gospels, it's pretty clear that Jesus often disappears to go and pray on his own. It's like when he needs time with his father, he kind of just leaves them sleeping or leaves them eating or whatever. And he goes off and he spends time with his father alone to pray. But in this moment, he chooses to take his disciples with him in his per to see his personal prayer. And as I was reading this this week, you almost get like this sense, like anybody who has children has ever had children, like I've got a three and a half year old right now. And there is like, I mean, once a day at least, there are moments where like Hannah is with me and I need her to see me, like so, and I need to be able to see her um, but I don't need her to be involved in this conversation. Actually, it's helpful if she's not involved in the conversation. Do you know what I'm talking about here? So like you need to have a grown-up conversation with somebody, like maybe in a shop or whatever, but you need her to like be over there and be quiet, right? Like not be involved in the conversation. It just makes my life easier. And you almost, when you read through this account, you almost get the sense that that's what Jesus is doing with the disciples. Like in this moment, the disciples need to see on this night, they need to see exactly what Jesus is doing. They need to, and he needs to be able to see them. So he takes them with him and he leaves them, you know, probably by a nice tree. And he says, okay, you stay here and you pray that you do not fall into temptation. And then it says he goes about a stone's throw away from them so they can still see him. But you see, Jesus, he has business to do. <clears throat> he has a conversation to be had. He has things to just go through. And all those disciples, he needs them to be able to see he needs to go through it. He doesn't want them to be interrupted. He needs them to see but not be interrupted. And it's at this moment, really, where we see what is going on with Jesus. 
And everything that we read here, it's like Luke puts it in intentionally. We need to pay real close attention to what Luke's put in here. Because as we read this, we, we read that as Jesus goes off to pray alone, immediately, <clears throat> immediately you get this feeling that he is carrying something so heavy, so heavy. And he gets a stone's throw away from the disciples and immediately his posture changes. He falls to his knees and he begins to pray. Now, the posture at the time, the right posture for praying in, in Jesus' time was to actually be standing. In public, you don't pray on your knees, you pray standing. <laughs> um, and so it's really relevant what, what Luke chooses to put in here and the other gospel accounts. And, but it's almost like demonstrating to us like, Normally, you would be stood praying, especially in public. But in this moment, Jesus couldn't help himself but to fall to his knees. And, and that's what the other gospel accounts say too. They, they say he fell on his knees. Matthew and Mark point that out to us. And it's almost like what he was carrying was so heavy. He just goes on to his knees. And at this moment, Jesus is going through it. And we see it described physically, like he can't help it. Like he's so in need of strengthening in this moment. He's going through something so massive that he needs to, needs to just be vulnerable before his father. But what we see is not just physically what happens, but then the words that he speaks leave us in no doubt as to what Jesus is going through. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Now, it's not necessarily a phrase that I use, you know, once a week, like when Jenny says, would you you know, empty the dishwasher and clean the kitchen. I go, oh, Jenny, if you're willing, will you take this cup from me, right? Like, it's not the first thing I say, um, although I am that dramatic. I just don't use those words. Um, but it's not a phrase we necessarily use today. But what Jesus says, he is so packed with meaning. Um, often in the Old Testament, the wrath of God, it would, uh, it, we talk about the wrath of God coming up against sin and dealing with it in the way it should be dealt with. And God's judgment and his wrath come in. And this was sometimes referred to in the metaphor of a cup. So Isaiah 51, uh, 17 says, Wake up, wake up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk the cup of the Lord's fury. You have drunk the cup of terror, tipping out its last drops. That's Psalm 75, verse 8 says, For the Lord holds a cup in his hand that is full of foaming wine and mixed with spices. He pours out wine in judgment and all the wicked must drink it, draining it to the dregs. You see, the cup is a symbol of God's wrath against all the wrongdoing of this world. All of the selfishness, all of the evil desires, death has been brought into the world through these things. And God promises that one day, his wrath, his fury, his judgment, it would come against sin and, and his judgment would be poured out. Jesus, by right, in this garden, he, he kneels before him. He shouldn't be drinking from this cup. He was an innocent man of sin, of, of any wrongdoing, yet before him was this choice to drink from this cup. The Lamb of God, the one without sin, the only perfect person to have ever lived, Jesus, 
He would be the sacrifice. And, for, and he would be the sacrifice for all people, for all time, for all sin. Jesus knew what awaited him. In the garden that night, he was fully aware of what the plan was of his father. He understood the physical torture that the Romans would put him through to the very limit of what human body can deal with. Not only that, that all sin for all time would be placed upon him. In his death, the cup would be poured out and the wrath of God would be satisfied in him. All of the synoptic gospels, they emphasize this enormity of the, the strain <laughs> that was felt by Jesus in this moment in the feeling of the temptation that came to him to not follow God's will but his own, to not take this on. Can you imagine the enormity of what he was feeling in that moment? He's on his knees. He's saying to God, Lord, if, it's, if you can, take this cup from me. And according to Matthew, Jesus prayed for three hours not only that, he describes Jesus as being deeply grieved in this moment. So the first part of what Jesus says is, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But then how he finishes the prayer is so incredible and it shows us who Jesus was and what he came to accomplish. Because he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. And to understand why this is such a significant moment, um, we need to go back to the beginning, actually. We need to go back to the beginning, not just of this story, but we need to go back to the beginning of our story, uh, the creation story, and what's become known as the fall. And the, the, you see, the garden that Jesus is in it's, in, it's no coincidence. Jesus is in the garden with, surrounded by trees. This is not a coincidence, the, you know, what Jesus is doing here. This, he's telling us something so significant that we need to pay attention to. So we're going to read Genesis 3, 1 to 12. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from, from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put in here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. See, in the Garden of Eden, there's this tree in the middle. It's described as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Hebrew, the word good is tov. Everybody say tov. Okay, you can do better than that. Everybody say tov. That's better. Every, <clears throat> and for, for bad, it's ra. Everybody say ra. All right, too many lion impressions, just ra. <laughs> One more time, ra. Ra, okay. Tov and ra, good and bad. That's what the tree represents. <clears throat> and now the issue is, until, up until this point in the story, the Genesis story, the story of creation, who is the one who is declaring what is good? Anybody tell me? Who's declaring what is good in the creation story? God, yeah, very good. God, God is declaring six times. God sees what he has made and says that it is good. All right, we do need to wake up a little bit. About being, all right, and the seventh time, God sees what he has made and it is very, very good, or very tall. And uh, God is the one. He is the one who is qualified to declare what is tov and what is ra, what is good and what is bad. With his matchless power, his knowledge, his goodness, his love, his righteous judgment, God is the one who decides what is good and what is bad. It's his job as his divine right. And the tree at the center of the Garden of Eden, it signifies a choice for Adam and Eve. Are you gonna trust God to decide, and his wisdom? Are you gonna trust him to choose what is right and what is wrong, are you going to allow him to lead you in what is tov and what is right and what is good and what is bad? And what do we read next in this story? Eve sees the fruit and sees that it is good. What's happened? Adam and Eve in this story, they take God's place. God has already told them that the fruit is raw, it's bad for you. Don't eat it, it's bad for you. Yet in this story, Eve sees the fruit and she decides that it is good. Choosing not to trust what God has said, but rather to take the place of God. <clears throat> Adam, which actually Adam just means human, all of us, <laughs> he fails the test in the garden. He failed his test in the garden. But you see Jesus, no normal human, God incarnate, he's the greater and better Adam. And in this moment of testing, in this moment of temptation in the garden, what does Jesus say? He chooses to say, not my will, Father, but yours. And where Adam's fa Adam fails the test and it brings death into this world. It brings death into his life. You see, Jesus, he passes the test and it brings life to the full to every single one of us. And Luke describes this moment like, like a doctor would describe it, really. He describes his physical condition and he says he's sweating so profusely that it's almost like it's, almost like it's dripping out of him, like, like an open wound, like blood pouring out of it. He's dripping with sweat. He's going through this moment of agony. 
of passing this test. But Jesus would overcome and he would choose to do the will of his father. And just as I was reflecting on this this week, I was thinking, what would, Jesus, what caused you in that moment to get back on your feet? You know, think about everything he's going through in that moment. He's on his knees. It's so heavy on him. He's, he's, he's mourning. He's grieving. He's weeping. He's, he's sweating so crazy amounts. And he's praying. He knows what's coming. He knows the spiritual, the physical, the, the mental torment that he's about to experience. He knows it all. That plan has become so clear to him in this moment. And yet Jesus, he gets up. He still gets to his feet. And he looks his arresting officer in the face. And I thought, what is it that got you back on your feet that night? Dripping with sweat, bloodshot eyes with, from the tears. And this is the thing, he, he got back on his feet because of his love for you. For you. Jesus stood back up that night for you. He did it out of his self-sacrificial love. He did it to make a way for you where there was no way. He did it so that you could have a relationship with your heavenly father. He did it so that sin and death that entered this world through Adam could be washed clean by his blood. He did it because where you were once bound and enslaved by your sin and by your shame, you can now be set free. Jesus got off the ground that night for you. Such a well-known scripture, but John 3, 16, 17, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So I wanna finish right now by just asking you a couple of <laughs> couple of things to reflect on. Some things that are actually quite easy to understand logically, <laughs> but very difficult to do. And that is, do we trust God to decide for us what is good and what is bad? What is tov and what is ra? For some of you, this can be a really simple thing in your life where you know that God has said something is not good for you. It's bringing spiritual death to you. Yet you're still choosing to participate in those things. Where you're saying, not your will, God, but mine. I'm gonna take your place and decide what's right for me. Perhaps you're still sleeping with someone even though you're not, you're not married. It's outside of the marriage covenant. Perhaps you're still visiting the same old websites because, well, is it really that bad? Perhaps you're stealing time from your employer, from your place of work, 
because it's not really that bad. Maybe you're happy to keep on in your gambling addiction, your alcohol intake, because, well, it's not that bad. You keep gossiping with your friends. Maybe you keep flirting with the guy at work, even though you know he's married, because it's not that bad. Allow God to be the one who decides what is bad for you, what's going to bring you spiritual death, and walk in obedience with him and what he's calling you to. For some of you, it's not necessarily what you're doing, but rather what you're not doing. (laughs) Maybe God's called you to something great. He has more for you than what you were doing in the past. Maybe it's something scary, maybe something outside of your comfort zone, but he's still calling you to walk with him, to come with him. Maybe he's called you into the mission field to share the gospel somewhere outside of your comfort zone. It's not going to be that good. (laughs) Maybe it's a family. He's calling you to be a family that adopts, that, that brings those who are outside of family into family. Maybe he's called you to start a prayer group amongst your friends, to pray for one another, to support one another, for the, so they can pray for you, to be accountable to each other. Maybe he's calling you to give money to the point where it hurts you. <laughs> but it's not going to be that good, is it? Maybe he's called you to set up a charity for a vulnerable group that he's put on your heart. Won't be that good. We need to stop deciding for God what is good and what is bad. We need to allow him to be God. And perhaps you've got to the point this morning where you know God's calling you to something, but you've decided it's not a good idea for you, for your family, for your career, for your finances. But God's told you. He's spoken to you. And actually, we need to be a church that in all circumstances, good or bad, that we say, not my will, but Lord, but yours. Your will be done, not my will. You see, Jesus got up off the ground that night so that you can experience life and life to the full. You can experience the fullness and the richness of God's love in your life. You can live a life without serving the flesh of the world. Actually, you can just come into a life of light of serving the Father, and he has good things for you. Good things. We're saying, Lord, I'm not going to decide anymore what's good or what's bad for me. I'm going to walk away from your throne (laughs) and leave you your crown. I'm going to allow you to get back on it. I'm going to allow you to decide what's best for me, what's best for my family, what's best for my church and what's best for your kingdom. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that on that night, you were so grief-stricken, Lord. You were going through, Lord, what we cannot even imagine and you knew what your fate was. You were headed to the cross heading to death to experience the weight of the sin of the world put on your shoulders. Not only that, but ultimately your father would turn his face from you. 
what you were going to go through was so excruciating to even think about, yet to go through I can't even imagine. But Jesus, thank you that you got up off the ground that night for me. You headed to the cross for me. That I don't have to live in sin and shame anymore. I'm set free by your blood. But in the new covenant, Lord, all that sin and shame is gone in the name of Jesus. Lord, forgive us for where we try to take your place and decide what is right for us and what is wrong for us. Lord, this morning as a church, we want to put you back in your rightful place and say, Lord, would you decide? Would you decide? You decide what is tough and right for me. And Lord, would you fill me with the power of your spirit so that I can be helped in walking in obedience to you. I really feel strongly that you are pulling some people out of some dark places this morning and saying, don't partake in that anymore. It's bad for you. It's only gonna bring death to you and to your family, to your friends, to your loved ones, to your church. But actually, I have better for you and Lord, those who, who have become accustomed and used to just warming the seat on a Sunday morning, but Lord, you're calling them to something greater. You've got more for them. You've got more challenge for them. You've got, you want to take them out of their comfort zone. Lord, I pray we would be a church that says, Lord, you declare what is good in my life and I will follow. No matter how scary, no matter how challenging, Lord, I want to follow you. So Lord Jesus, as fresh as a church this morning, we want to say, blessed be your name, Lord. You are God. You are God, the only one qualified to decide what is right and what is wrong. And we lay our lives down again at your feet this morning. Lord, would you have your way? In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.